Hello. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Welcome to the night. We don't talk like that. It's like deep in your throat when the, when the mic picks it up, man. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Not Dumb Podcast. Uh, Please don't talk like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my NPR voice, man. Yeah, that's my NPR, NPR voice. Um, wait, let me turn these headphones down. These headphones yeah, I am loud. hella hating on y'all full beards going on right oh, now. Oh, <laughs> man. Mine so, just needs, has, needs to shape up bad. This yo, is Grizzly Adams beard, bro. Yeah. So I, thought, I figured out what was going on, man. I am allergic to my sideburns. You're you allergic to your own sideburns. Yeah. What's up with that, bro? I got a. I, I started shaving like every two days. Yeah. Three days. Yeah. And I stopped breaking out as much. Oh, okay. no! You're allergic to. Uh, well, I think what's happening is uh, the, it's oil. the ingrown hair. The ingrown hair. The oil. And yeah. when you shave, it exposes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it exposes a little bit of under under dermis. That's not yeah. the correct term, but I'm just making that epidermis. Up. No, nah, the <laughs> under dermis. The dermis is dermis. Just the dermis. There's a couple of layers of epidermis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, this is gonna be. How you doing? How you doing? Yeah, yeah, we podcast, man. That's how we do, bro. That's how we do. Uh, so our, <laughs> we'll um, just edit it out, man. <laughs> You're not gonna let it out. You, you guys gonna be in the podcast, bro. <laughs> so, uh, hope you guys are ready for it. That, right, was, a, so, that um, was a nice little thing to get in it. Y'all doing the podcast? All right. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. So our normal uh, quote unquote studio is um, flooded. Got flooded, so we're uh, in the what is this room called? This is the lounge. So this is the lounge that we're in. So you're gonna hear the elevator dinging. <laughs> Uh, you're gonna hear people walking in to get uh, hot chocolate from this machine because uh, Shaman lives in a fancy building. It's kind of cooler in here, but this chair is not as comfy. No, I don't. I don't think I care for this chair very much. And if you go all the way forward on this chair, it'll hit you in the nuts. Mm, I'm not gonna do that. Then. <laughs> I was actually leaning forward to see what would happen until you said that. And I stopped. <laughs> um, anyway, this is the 22nd episode of the Not Dumb Podcast. I apologize. Uh, last week we were not able to make it. As I said before, Shaman and I are great men. This is just reality. And uh, behind <laughs> us, behind us, we have great women. And we're going to get in trouble for the whole behind thing. Uh, next to us. Next to us. Okay, adjacent. sure. And next to us, uh, adjacent to the great men that we are, is uh, two great women. And um, you know, if something happens with one of them, uh, it kind of makes us uh, have to put things on pause. So, you know, we each got a lot of kids, and. Um, I apologize. Uh, we we just couldn't make it happen. So, um, but anyway, what we did do is we uh, went to the Muslim Alumni Islamic Finance Conference. So we did a couple of interviews there, and um, so we're going to introduce them now. Um, this was on October twenty sixth and twenty seventh, uh, a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks ago. That's last week. Last weekend. So we're going to introduce the three interviews that we did. And uh, starting with number one, go. So the first interview we did was a really interesting conversation we had with a Imran Saeed, who's the co-founder of Teach the World Foundation, Inc. Mm. And Noreen Miraja, Miraj, mm. rather. She was also the co-founder. And it was a, I think people are really going to enjoy that conversation because mm. they were taking games and gamification to teach people literacy and numeracy which is a new word for me by the way numeracy numeracy i have never heard that word before neither have i Hmm. numeracy is to teach people numbers math math the basics of math reasoning Hmm. and literacy obviously is to understand the the written and the written word Hmm. so 
pretty interesting. I feel like I should know that word. I mean, I do have a full college degree uh, in English, but, you know, English literature, but, you know, whatever. Um, okay. Well, yeah, here we go. Uh, here it is uh, right now. Two very smart people talking about uh, numeracy and other things. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're at the Harvard University Muslim Alumni Islamic Finance Conference. Um, in the 2018, this conference has been going on. How many years has this conference been going on? Since 1997. 1997. Wow, I got to it late. I've only come <laughs> since 2010. I, I've always enjoyed this conference. I think it's very impactful and it's helpful towards the community. So it's relax, just have a conversation and get used to it. So, um, you know, let's learn about you guys. What, what's your names and what do you do and what's your project and how do you get involved in the conference? Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll start and then I'll hand it off to Noreen. Um, so I I know Dr. Nazim, the, who's the you know one of the founders of this conference for a while, and uh, um, I'm a professor of entrepreneurship and innovation at the Sloan School of Management at MIT. And I'm also a co-founder of Teach the World Foundation, uh, which is a nonprofit focusing on literacy for children in the developing world. And uh, I'm also, as I said, a professor of entrepreneurship and innovation. So uh, Professor Nazim wanted to expand the focus or the scope of this conference from purely finance to, you know, finance, careers, and entrepreneurship. So he asked me to lead a panel um, on that topic over here. So that's why I'm here today and uh, recruited uh, my colleague, uh, Noreen, uh, and my co-founder because she has a background in, um, you know, social entrepreneurship. She herself is a social entrepreneur, uh, but also in learning and development. So that's how I got involved. Oh, Noreen. fantastic. Um, we probably should say everybody's name. So once again, this is a. I'm Shimon Warden, your host. Uh, nickname Biz. They call me that because I talk about business a lot. Um, and so just say your name, Noreen. Sure, Noreen Mirage. Um, should I tell a little bit about myself? Please do. Please do. Uh, so as Imran mentioned, I am a co-founder for Teach the World Foundation, and I'm currently the chief learning officer there. Um, my mission there is to find um, gamified learning applications that can help uh, impoverished and underdeveloped communities, especially children in those communities, to become literate and be able to eventually you know, find work to get an education, especially those who don't have a, um, who don't have access to schools, who don't have access to good qualified and certified teachers. Um, and become uh, contributing members of society so that they can in turn turn around and help their own communities when they so is your initiative um, domestic? Is there an is international initiative? It is. An, it's a global initiative. Wow, yes. fan, fantastic. Um, is it limited to organization of Islamic states or countries, or is it um, – actually, that's a lot of countries globally. So, <laughs> Or is it just um, – So far, we're in Muslim-majority countries, right? So we're in Pakistan and we're in Bangladesh. We're working with Rohingya refugees as well. But our goal next is to expand into Malawi, which I don't think that's a Muslim country, right? I'm actually not sure. Well, there's definitely Muslims there. Yeah. But, uh, you know, just to answer your question, no, we're not limited to Muslim communities um, specifically. Or, you know, we're definitely wanting to reach out beyond that uh, region, beyond that population, and help anyone who needs it. Oh, fantastic. I mean, literacy touches every, you know, literacy or illiteracy, if you want to say, it touches, you know, all communities in some capacity. And um, we all need literacy to, to be able to flourish. So, uh, I was listening. Oh, I'm going to forget the 
one of the sheikhs that have a YouTube channel, and they were saying that many people are literate, but they're functionally illiterate, or um, or their literacy is limited because their education is so narrowed. You know, they were um, almost like in the the 19th century, they were trained. The people were becoming literate, but they were training them to be factory workers, as opposed to thinking beyond their individual tasks they needed to do or being described in some role in society. How do you think that your program of talking about literacy, and I'm just being broad with it, it's going to impact the lives of the people that you're reaching? Yeah, no, that's actually a very good point. Um, and it's one of the things that we cite, right? There are 273 million children in the world without access to teachers. But when you actually expand that to the population that is functionally illiterate, meaning that they may have some training, but they only, as you just said, know you know what to do in a factory model, then that number rises to over a billion and a half. Wow, right? so it's, it's a massive problem around the world, right? And it's and what it's doing is it's it's dramatically suppressing the human potential. Because yes. if you have a billion and a half people who, who are functionally illiterate, um, then that means that they can't perform to their potential. And so our program is really geared towards not just providing the mechanics of reading and writing and addition and subtraction, but really um, helping these children, um, you know, question, interact, be creative, and really sort of, you know, learn these t- subjects at a fundamental, at a foundational perspective versus uh, just the rote learning that makes them, you know, these functionally literate people. Well, that's actually interesting because I have not heard too many people include math literacy with what we think is reading and writing literacy, even though that's critical reasoning. No, absolutely. In fact, uh, numeracy is what will help sustain them with, you know, the potential to earn. Okay. So they really need to be literate in the numerical um, elements as well. And then another thing that we are doing is um, also starting to offer social emotional learning. Hmm. And, you know, just like we were talking about being functional, functionally uh, literate, you have to be able to cope with a lot of things that you are facing, the challenges that you're facing. It's not just all academic. It's the environment. It's, you know, dealing with anxiety. It's how do you calm yourself. And to be able to incorporate that within our teaching will help people, you know, move further um, in a positive way. And then the other element that I wanted to bring up is the gamified aspect. So having these as games, it makes it more motivational. Oh, and okay. it's, it's a self-directed, self-learning process. So now you're not dependent on someone else telling you what to do next. You are achieving something and being motivated to move on and develop um, a, further, um, you know, a further need for knowledge and a further need to just learn more and do more and see yourself you know, succeed at different levels. So having that element brought into the learning uh, realm I think um, does a lot more, you know, as far as being able to not only learn but retain what you learned. So does gaming help with those cultural barriers that you sometimes, because undergrad was a sociology major, and I remember reading a lot of books, at least the ones that stick in my mind right now, that sometimes the culture is that that child, where we think of that child should be in school, but to that family who's distressed, that child is an earner to the family. And how do you balance that child learning, the parents learning, the um, getting educated, literate? Uh, do you say numeracy? Is that the proper term? Oh, that's I like the way that sounds. <laughs> and and make this transition. Does this, that 
independent learning game help them continue to earn? I mean, how do you balance that out? Or help, or is that a transition into formal education? Um, well, I can answer it from my perspective in Iran, certainly. I mean, I know you can bring in another angle to it as well. Um, so when you have something that's immersive and experiential, such as learning games, then you are learning sort of real-life um, trends and real-life issues, and you're immersing yourself in a game-like fashion um, to understand what these challenges are and how to handle these challenges. And then you incorporate the whole the numeracy factor, the reading and writing factor. And so you're learning simultaneously, but you're also getting skills. And that will give the potential to earn. Now, there's definitely a transition you know, in a lot of these uh, areas. There's that traditional sort of learning methodology where you just you know, read, 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 memorize, 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 and then you take an exam and you pass it, and then what? And even today, in the panel that I was on, we touched upon the level of creativity and the ability to think beyond your you know, typical means or the tasks at hand and to innovate. And um, what gaming allows, at least from the perspective or the educational perspective that I believe in and I come from, that you are being given to think, again, um, beyond just what's in front of you and gaming allows you to, to do that, or it could if you use it in the right way. Of All right, so those are those, um, hopefully we'll be able to, they'll be able to rebroadcast the panel. What was the name of the panel for, if the audience member wants to look it up? It's called the Building Blocks of a Muslim Entrepreneurial Ecosystem. So a person, how can someone listening to this who is like, wow, I'm motivated, I really want to help with literacy and numeracy, um, how do I get involved? How do they reach out to you? How can they be useful? Can they be Absolutely. Advocates, do they give money? How right. they, are they teachers? What they well, I would the first thing I would encourage is for them to visit our website, which is teachtheworldfoundation.org, all one word. Okay. And uh, there's a seven minute video right on the homepage that actually shows the dramatic transformation of these kids in three months um, from not knowing anything, literally playing on the street to, you know, reading, writing, doing you know, crossword puzzles in certain cases, doing addition, subtraction, it's amazing. Um, and I think that'll give them an idea of the potential of, of this uh, model um, in terms of addressing the, the problems of illiteracy in the world. And then beyond that, um, you know, we have different mechanisms um, to get engaged, right? We have a Facebook page. We'd like people to be at least part of that community and to see, you know, some of the progress that we're making as we go from different country to country and from different geographies. We would love, obviously, people to both contribute their, their money but also their time, right? Um, we definitely need volunteers. We need people, you know. We can train a person to be a facilitator in seven days. Wow. That's all it takes, right? So versus like years that it takes for a teacher, you can train somebody to do a facilitator. So if someone wants to actually go out there and say, you know what, I'm really motivated. I want to go in a Rohingya refugee camp and work with these kids. We can train them in seven days um, to be able to do that. I just wanted to actually add uh, to what Imran was saying that um, what we're doing here, it's not a means to replace teachers. It's unfortunate that there's so many regions in the world that, and communities in the world that don't have access to great teachers. And you know, this is sort of like the next best thing. Um, teachers have such an importance in our lives. So, um, but if they're missing that, then how do we allow for people, for children to learn? and learn well. So that's Thank you for I'm that, because I would have gotten in a lot of trouble if you criticized teachers, because my <laughs> no. wife's 
whole family are teachers, right? <laughs> I come from that background as well. So um, I'm a big advocate for teachers. And you no, know, this was basically a way to help teachers, you know, to be sort of a supplemental program. And do you have any adjacency, adjacencies to your, to your program? So as you're solving this way of learning, because I have children from the age of 24 to 18 months. Um, yeah, I five of them. And they each learn to read and learn to, you know, math reasoning skills at a different rate. Um, and they, they've been educated in multiple different states, so different experiences. Still an American experience for the most part. Could, a, could someone utilize your program, a parent, who might be teaching at home, could be maybe working internationally, um, and use your program themselves to educate their children or their, their, you know, their neighboring community? Absolutely. I mean, so the games that we're using, by the way, um, are not games that we've developed ourselves. We're using commercially available games that have been used, that are being used with several hundred thousand or over a million kids in the U.S. today. What we've done is that we've taken those games and made them available and accessible to populations in the world like these, you know, refugee camps that they were never available in. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, so if people over here want to do it, it's as simple as going to the Google Play or at, or the App Store and just downloading it and you know making it uh, just just starting it out. I'm gonna send them to your site so that y'all <laughs> get the credit. Um, sometimes I've noticed sometimes when well people might be more motivated to help and from there to get empowered mm-hmm. and then they start using them tools themselves. But um, hopefully this is I've really enjoyed y'all coming sitting down with. Well, normally I would say us, but um, Cliff and Iman are on their way. Um, we've been having an interesting time. Um, I hope my voice is all right, everyone. It's horrible weather outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's rainy New England weather. Um, but I appreciate your time. I really enjoyed this conference. I wish more people could have the opportunity to attend and see the the greatness that's in the community um, here domestically and internationally that's working on all these important issues. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Oh, man, welcome back. Well, I don't know about you, but I was highly informed by that. Um, I know it sounds like uh, we didn't listen to it and we just recording these well, since I was right after another. there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we were right there, but that was highly informative. Man, I learned so much about numeracy. Um, I hope you guys did, too. I I think people really enjoy the fact that they can learn games and they can help people learn to read around the world because most people don't have access to education, much less teachers. It's very sad. Exactly. Um, All right. So our next guest that we interviewed at the Muslim Alumni Islamic Finance Conference, is there like a short way to say this? Most people just call it. It used to be called the Harvard Islamic Forum. So many of us still say that, but it's not called the Islamic Conference. Islamic right. Finance Conference. It's the only one in the... The, the Islamic... Uh, the, the other person, or one of the other people we met at the Islamic Finance Conference, um, Mr. David Loundy. Yes. Um, what was the bank he was with? Uh, Devon Bank. Devon Bank is he, out of Illinois, right? Yes. Okay. He, out of Chicago. He's actually the chairman of the board and the CEO. Okay. So here's the story about David. He's actually a Jewish man from a Jewish family, and um, his bank offers Sharia compliant options for Muslims to use. Yes. I thought that was very interesting. So we were happy to talk with him about it. And he very, he very plainly in very plain English broke it down. Everything that he does. I, I found it to be quite interesting. I, th- I think most people are going to be really impressed because David is one of the, from the U S perspective, mm-hmm. one of the 
um, leading minds and practitioners of Islamic finance. There's only now him and Guidance Bank. They're really doing a lot of products here domestically. Mm. He has a full Sharia board. He really understands it. Um, I love the story that he brings into. I think people are gonna because they did non-interest financing for the Jewish community, mm-hmm. and from those learnings, implied it to the Islamic community. And to make it Sharia compliant. To make it Sharia compliant. And fun fact about guidance: uh, we asked their CEO to come through. Uh, he decided not to. So you know, hey, we uh, we interviewed the Jewish guy who's doing the same thing instead. Hey, what are you going to do? Well, actually, uh, he's doing a few more things because guidance does mainly mortgages. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, there you go. So yeah, he's doing God, a few more things. So they have like options for cars and leasing and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Depending on, and commercial loans and guidance yeah. is heavily i mean mortgages is a lot especially to be sure you comply so basically the jewish guy gave us the time of day and uh (laughs) 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 the guidance financial guy said uh yeah you guys kick rocks and And, uh, there you go he said some other time yeah he said some other time he didn't say kick rocks explicitly but you know yeah come on you know what we're saying all right enjoy welcome to the not dumb podcast i am your host iman abdullah have shaman warden here Young Cliff Young, and we have a special guest. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Women, I was still fumbling, man. <laughs> hey, David, how do you say your last name? Laurie? Loundy. Loundy, Loundy. Uh, David Loundy is the president and CEO of Devon Bank, correct? Chairman and CEO. Chairman and CEO. Oh, I demoted you partially. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> um, and we've been coming to this conference here uh, on uh, Harvard University on uh, Islamic finance. If they changed the name, which makes me stumble a little bit, because it used to be called the Harvard Forum on Islamic Finance, and now it's a Harvard Islamic Finance. Oh no, the Islamic Finance Conference at Harvard University. It's the same thing. Yeah, move from <laughs> the students to the alumni. Yeah. So I'm um, really excited to have you here, and I'd love to uh, hear more about you. So um, everyone else doesn't know all the good stuff that you do, but. You get to speak around the world on on finance and banking, and you've probably influenced a lot more people than people think about. And I guess many of our listeners are small business owners, entrepreneurs, and some random people in Italy that we really love and uh, keep all, sharing. All four of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and who knows who this is being replayed to? So, if you were using it to talk to a customer or a policymaker or whomever else is listening, what did they need to know about? Uh, Devon Bank and about David? Well, that's kind of a broad question. Devon Bank is a 73-year-old community bank. We were started by merchants in the Devon Avenue area on the north side of Chicago that felt that they needed a bank that was responsive to their needs. Mm -hmm. And we do things that community banks do. So we have checking accounts and savings accounts and we do loans and safe deposit boxes and all those sorts of things. But the community we're in is supposedly the most ethnically diverse neighborhood in the United States. Wow. And at any point in time, with 100 staff people, we speak somewhere between 25 and 35 languages at the bank. Wow, that's impressive. It it is. Uh, So at, at that one bank, there's 35 different languages within it? Yes. Wow, that's good. It's known as a new immigrant neighborhood where people come in, get settled, bring family over from the old country, wherever the old country is, and then sort of move on, and mm. it's always in flux. Yeah. But uh, of that community, a uh, very large Indian Pakistani population, um, some Arab, a lot of African, a lot of Orthodox Jews, 
um, variety of Eastern European. And it really started for us um, with some of the Orthodox Jews who won't deal in interest. And they said, can you help? Hmm. And at the time, we figured out a solution. Uh, and shortly after that, uh, the Muslims came along and said, well, we can't deal in interest either. Can you help? And at the time, the only place they could find commercial Islamic finance was the United Bank of Kuwait. Oh, and a little far. A little it far. is. <laughs> a little bit. They, they had uh, some sales presence in the United States. Okay. But that bank got bought. And they said, you know, we're just not that interested in the United States. Got it. So all they right. told all their customers, go find other arrangements. And our international officer, who was wiring their payment overseas every month, came back to bank management and said, you know, there's really an unmet need here. This is really something we should look into. Mm. And the bank said, well, we did it for the Jews. Why don't we do it for the Muslims? And started developing Islamic finance products. And uh, this was about the time of the dot-com bust. And I had uh, done internet law for about a dozen years and got reorganized out of a job in the dot-com bust. Mm -hmm. And uh, the bank is a family business, and it's my family. So my father said, you know, I'm approaching my 70s. Why don't you come join the family business and see if this is in your future? And in the meantime, this was kind of a neglected project. So they handed me the Islamic finance project and said, why don't you see what you can make of this, will you? As we started, Sounds easy. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> I had to go and get some certifications because you don't want to say, all right, who's your Sharia board? Oh, the Jewish kid on the third floor. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sell very well. <laughs> uh, it probably doesn't work out too well, yeah. But uh, we did a lot of studying. We worked with the Sharia Board of America. We started developing products. Yeah. And as we did this and rumor got out that we were even working on products, uh, people started coming out of the woodwork. Can you do houses? Can you do cars? Can you help my sister in Connecticut? Sort of always pushing the envelope. And uh, we saw there was a real need, and we were in a good position to do something about it. So we did. Wow. I mean, even this day, when I've been looking for products for like small businesses, there's this notion that commercial products for there is Sharia compliant that are competitive with the market don't exist. I mean, everyone thinks mortgages, and people know it, you could do equities. But you're saying that you've created other products out there. So if you own a car dealership, you know a couple of car dealers, they can find financing for their to grow their businesses, to fund their customers. Which, which niche would they fall into? In some ways, it's very easy. In some ways, it's very hard. And the problem is that... The providers of retail and small enterprise Islamic finance in the U.S. are all small players. You know, we're not a multi-billion dollar bank. We're a $275 million bank. So if somebody comes to us and says, you know, I want to buy uh, a truckload of halal chicken because I'm a chicken processor, okay, where are you? How big is the truck? How many of these trucks are you going to do a month? You know, we have to start asking a lot of questions. And if the answer is, you know, it's too big, it's out of our region, our criteria become very restrictive simply because we just don't have that much money to deal with every inquiry that comes around. In the U.S., there is effectively infinite capacity in one small portion of the universe of deals. You hear about home financing because Freddie Mac 
uh, provides 99.x percent of the liquidity for Islamic finance in the United States. All mm. of Islamic finance for Freddie Mac is a rounding error on its balance sheet. <laughs> but you know, wow. if you want to start buying a warehouse, well, where is it? How big is it? You know, with our legal lending limit is, you know, about five and a half million. You know, we can work with other banks to do larger projects by participating it out. But there's a series of additional questions that are all based on demand control, hmm. not credit. Wow. So I have a question, and so a lot of our listeners have zero idea how Islamic financing works. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I may or may not be in that category. Uh, you know, it's uh, remains to be found. Um, <laughs> so where is, we're both business guys. Shaman's got the MBA. I just have a business that I made work. I, I don't have any degrees or anything like him. But I like to know where the money is. So on your level, where is the potential for profit? Because I know that Sharia compliance, or I'll just say, I don't know about Sharia compliance, I don't want to say that, but I know that um, if you loan someone $100,000, you can't get back more than $100,000. How does how does your bank make money? Simple. We don't loan the 100000 Okay. For Islamic finance, mm-hmm. there are a number of different structures that are used. Okay. And it may be based on a trade concept. It may be based on a lease. It may be based on a partnership, mm. but it's not based on a loan. Okay. So if you think about it, and it's easy to miss this in the course of the transaction, look at something simple like mm-hmm. home finance. Mm-hmm. If this was a conventional loan, you would come to me and say, I want to buy the house. And we'd say, how much is it? And you'd tell us, and we would lend you most of that money, and you would go and you would buy that house. Okay. Now... It happens at the closing at a title company often where the check arrives, you know, the wire transfer. You sign a bunch of documents. You don't see the money, but we have lent you the money and you bought the house. For an Islamic financing transaction, you may say, I want to buy that house. And we say, okay, we're going to buy the house Hmm. and we're going to sell it to you at a marked up price, paid over time, but at no interest. But our money is going to the seller. The title has to be transferred to the bank. The bank has to own the property and have the risk of loss. And then we're simply selling you what is now our house in installments. So I was a real estate agent for four, five years. Mm -hmm. Um, I was licensed up until a couple years ago. I just let it expire because I wasn't using it. So I know that when you you buy a house, the interest you pay, if you you do the term of a 30-year loan, a $500,000 house will be $1.1 million or $1.2, something like that, in total interest and in everything payments. Mm-hmm. So does that mean you're buying? Because I know you have to still, you still have a bottom line that you have to get to. So does Correct. it mean you're buying a, a $500,000 house and you're selling it back at $1.2 million, so you still get your your same interest, or how does that work? For that kind of structure, mm-hmm. yes, that's what. Okay, we're so be that's doing. basically it's basically the same type of thing. You're just making it different. So let's say it is going to be in most cases economically equivalent to a conventional interest-bearing loan. Got it. Not all cases, however. Okay, so so how does it work if the guy wants to sell his house after three years or four years, or the guy uh, can't make his payments after a few years? How does the what's the process go like after that? Well, if the person's a deadbeat, Mm -hmm. the process is effectively the same. 
Okay. You know, we're going to throw your ass out and take your house and sell it. Oh, it sounds kind. You promised that you were going to pay us, <laughs> and you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It's a little harsh, now, but okay, sure, sure. That happens. Yeah. You know, our philosophy is if a customer works with us, we're going to work with the customer. Okay. Because if we throw somebody out of a house, yeah, it's, it doesn't work for, for anyone. I know that. Or yeah. us. Exactly. Yeah. So that's obviously the last case scenario. Okay. Um, in the case of early payments, that is a religiously complex issue. Mm. Um, there are different transaction forms that don't have those complexities, but the cost plus sale, a Marabaha transaction, is not one of them. Mm. And if you think about it, if I buy a house for 100 and I sell it for 150, how much do you owe me? You owe me 150. That's what the debt is. Yeah. There's no principal and interest, it's all principal. So if you have to move after a year, how much do you owe me? It's well, still that. the debt is 150. Yeah. What you're really asking is, will you accept a discount of the debt in exchange for early payment? Okay. And the very carefully rehearsed, religiously acceptable answer is that the bank, at its discretion, may discount the debt in exchange for early payment, but we can't agree as to whether there's going to be a discount or how much it will be. If we did, we're reading an interest rate back into the equation. Got it. Okay. So in that transaction form, it is a necessary religious ambiguity. If you don't want that, then you don't want that product. A rent-to-own model would be one where we buy for 100 we sell for 100 mm -hmm. but we keep title of the property until you pass the 100 So you're now using our property, so you're paying rent for the use. Got it. But with that, there is no question about uh, paying early because we bought it for 100 We're selling it for 100 Pay us the 100 and you're done. Whether it's in six months or 20 years, there's no issue of discounting of debt. So that so the rent to own model is you're still you're paying every month and but if you decide to sell early you still have that solid debt of exactly what it is. Right. Exactly. I think that's um I, I think I know that model too. What do you see as new products coming on the horizon? Because you're having all these boom and bust cycles. Um, we've been talking about Islamic finance for a while. There's an appetite for more like I need something besides banking. You know, mm -hmm. I want to run my business. I want to trade internationally. Um, just people trying to tell you that credit cards are <laughs> are permissible, and, uh, or maybe they're creating some kind of debit card product. I, I remember you talking with you about it. So as people are learning, they're saying, "I need something relevant for my needs, for what I'm looking to do." They're looking for greater choice, and they're going around. Sometimes they can go around the world. And I think there's a difference between persons with this uh, disposable income they can shop around and get exactly what they want and they can pay the, the religious premium to make sure they're absolutely compliant and those persons that want it they have the intention but they have a financial limit and how are you dealing with those two challenges well to take a step back you asked about additional products and where I'm spending my time on is, you know, I've gone around, I've given Islamic Finance 101 to various groups lots of times. And it frustrates me, particularly when I go and talk to religious institutions. Mm -hmm. And the level of sophistication that I see is hit or miss. And often the amount of planning that has been done is surprisingly low. Now, I talked to one particular very large charity 
um, that was just starting to think about an endowment. And I'm thinking, wow, an institution of this size doesn't have an endowment already. So I've been trying to talk to particularly a lot of the nonprofits on how to take things up a notch. You know, how can you plan long term? Not just putting a new wing on the masjid, but um, how do you build the infrastructure so that you're not reliant on passing the hat at Ramadan? Um, so we are creating things like Sharia-compliant donor-advised funds. Uh, we're putting together a suite of philanthropy-based products, um, things that we can do uh, to help them invest in a Sharia-compliant fashion and fundraise and build long-term safety in their communities. Yeah, on the individuals, um, we are working on, as you mentioned, these debit card products that uh, sort of enforce savings. So one of them is a, a round-up debit card, where if you go to Starbucks and you swipe your card for $2.60, it actually hits your account for $3, and the $0.40 cents gets shunted aside. And it's intended oh, that's to, a great idea. as a savings product, so yeah. you can have the bar mitzvah account at the Christmas club, the Hajj account, you know, whatever you want, it's simply a savings vehicle. Hmm. But you're not likely to notice a few cents here, a few cents there. You know, on average, it's going to be 50 cents that's a swipe. That's a fantastic idea. I don't know why we're not doing that here. Well, it's available, and we're starting to offer it. I'm going to get an account there. Where are you at, Chicago? Yep. We're going to have online account opening set up hopefully by February. But mm. we're trying to even take that a notch further yeah. and use it for micro-contributions so that instead of going to your account, it can go to a charity's account. Yeah. And you know, a lot of millennials are charitably inclined. They don't want to use credit cards after seeing their parents nearly get wiped out in the recession. Tell me about it. They don't want to deal in cash, however. Yeah. So debit card is the tool of choice. They may be charitably inclined. That doesn't mean they're charitably endowed. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. you know, 50 cents here and there, really sort of fits the value system. And uh, we are creating uh, what I refer to as six charity buckets so that um, you can pick which category of charity you would like to donate to. The first one that we announced is the sanctuary card, yeah. where it goes to immigration and refugee causes. So the 40 cent roundup goes into that bucket and then we decide what gets watered with that bucket uh, based on our contact with the individual charities. Yeah, so those are the kinds of things that we're trying to work on that really get to how can we get beyond just meeting people's financial needs and provide greater good in society at the same time. That's amazing. I mean. I think that's a great idea, man. So how can we be helpful? You know, because I found that there's so much misinformation out there where people just, they don't know what, they, well, I like quoting Donald Rumsfeld and I did meet the guy. So, you know, his classic statement is there, you know, no, no. yeah, yeah I'm not I didn't know that. Yeah, he would come on my aircraft carrier often. But anyway, so he would, you know, the classic quote, but it makes sense to me. There are known unknowns and there are unknown unknowns. I've noticed that many people, they can't distinguish between the two. And they're, they're profoundly different, you know. Um, so what do we do to people who do not know what they do not know? And that, and say, hey, to at least let them be known unknowns. 
<laughs> that sounds ridiculous. What do you think about it? Well, well I could just say bit. I don't yeah. know, and it would fit with your question. <laughs> you know, we just do our thing, and we try and let people know, and we listen to people so that if there's an unmet need and somebody comes to us and say, hey, have you thought about this? We look at it and say, is this something we can do? Is this something that there's a need for? You know, can we do this well? Can we hopefully make some money at it and do some good? You know, we look at those things. Mm -hmm. And if one person has a great idea and we can accommodate it, who else needs it? You know, then we look to see, you know, is this something that we can productize and, and push to a wider audience? Let me ask you a hard-hitting question here. So oh. you said did your family's Jewish, and is your family, that's your family's bank, right? Mm-hmm. Do you have um, a lot of kickback or uh, struggle from Muslims who don't want to get an Islamic product from a family of Jews? Uh, I know that some of our competitors have pushed that angle. Okay. Um, you know... I look at this as something we can do to spread a little bit of world peace. And in Islamic finance, I have never seen a more nasty, cutthroat, unpleasant business all being done in the name of God. But, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, there it is. Yeah, we do this because we're serving a need. And, yes, we're going to lose some customers Mm -hmm. because we, you know, wear ugly ties or they don't like you know, the corner our building is located on or our clientele. And if we're doing the best that we can and we lose some business in the process, then I hope the door doesn't hit him in the ass on the way out. You know, we're going to do what we're going to do because we think that we are helping the largest number of people who need help. Yeah. Um, I've seen more of the opposite where people say, God, you know, I'm just glad that somebody is looking out for our interests. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I uh, a small story. I so I um, we just got a new car for my um, for my wife, and um, we didn't get the we didn't do the auto financing with a much lesser payment uh, because of the interest involved. So we had to lease the car, and I mean, it, you know, we weren't mad at Chrysler Jeep because they weren't Muslim. So I mean, it's just it's just a little. Uh, I don't know. It's relevant. I leased in my last car too. Well, it's, but it's more expensive to lease a car than it is to just make the two hundred dollar a month payment on the financing, you know. But we just didn't do that because, you know. So anyway, that was just a little. Uh, we we we're, we're we're champions of uh, tangents. So yeah. we take tangents <laughs> well, often. Uh, often take tangents. If you want to take the tangent, you're like, hey, what tangents. are these guys doing? <laughs> now, did you look to see whether your lease is Sharia compliant? I mean, there's no interest, so I don't, you know, is there, is there... But that's not necessarily the only aspect of it that makes it Sharia compliant. Oh, you'd like to learn something. Right I'd now. like to learn what, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe it there, is. Are there late fees? If you don't There probably is. I just, so I just signed away. So late Sharia compliant? No, they aren't. But I don't, I, I'm, I'm assuming that there would be late fees. But it's the same thing with the credit cards. A lot of Muslims are like, oh, if you just pay it off every month, uh, there's, there's nothing, there's no interest there, so there you go. But, um... I think if you're late once, you instantly get interest charges, and then there you go, you're you're in, you're in it. So I mean, yeah, I think it's probably in that same line of thinking. You know, doing a properly Sharia compliant car financing transaction is horribly complex mm. because you've got a titled vehicle. Yeah. So if I'm going to buy it and resell it, that means I have to buy it and 
send the title to the Secretary of State and get the title transferred, and then I have to sell it again and send the title back to the Secretary of State, mm -hmm. and now you're getting a used car title instead of a new car title, and at least in the state of Illinois, the state police have to come out and inspect our lot and check our zoning, wow. and we have to be a car dealer. Whoa. So we don't do car financing. Wow. Now, okay. We have talked to some that car seems dealers, like and a we lot, may though. do it on a leasing basis. Yeah. But at that point, we're going to use a customized lease where we know that the entirety of the lease would be Sharia compliant. Uh, so what? What would? How? How do you? That's another thing. How do you not have late payments or late fees on 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 any kind of payment? I mean, everyone has that. Well, there's a, a sort of different set of school of thoughts. So okay. some say you can never have one any. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. Others say, yes, you can have a late payment, but only in some circumstances. Mm -hmm. So obviously that's the one we like better. Sure. <laughs> um, our contracts say that if you can come to us and show us that the reason why you were late is because you couldn't pay, mm -hmm. then there's no late payment due. Because part of the whole purpose behind religiously compliant financing mm -hmm. is not to penalize you for hardship, by yeah. making you pay more because of that hardship. That was the evil that was intended to be prevented. Sure, sure, sure. But our contracts also say that um, if you just forgot to mail the check, we can charge you a late payment. We just can't profit from it. And that anything over our collection costs have to be donated to charity. So we've set up the Devon Charitable Endowment Trust and we can donate <laughs> okay. the late fees to this endowment trust that then goes to things like the sanctuary card and its ilk Got and it. supports local charities. Got it. Well, that's good. So you just you created a nice, good ecosystem where you, exactly. people get some good get benefit, and mm -hmm. they don't feel like you're exploiting them. You're you're still having you're addressing the moral hazard component, but you're also trying. Also addressing the exploitation. We're trying to. Yeah. I, I mean, it seems very reasonable. Well, yeah. I mean, it's the thing is, I mean, the way banking is done on the world stage, you kind of just have to roll with it and do the best you can is the way I see it. The Sharia compliant or not, you know, the, the, the way money works in the world. I mean, money, we're not even going to have money in another 15 years. Anyway, it's all going to be, you know, zeros and ones I mean that digitally yeah. so I mean it just seems like you kind of just have to do the best you can <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you know I don't know but um yeah it's just um this is a fascinating topic I, I'd like to learn more I wish I came for the um I wish I came for this whole thing I'm just getting here now I haven't seen any part of this whole conference I just came here about an hour ago so I'm, I'm you know you I, have, I have all the you new saw questions the closing remarks which were actually pretty good yes yeah, yeah. Were you, did you speak to? No, I didn't. Not oh, okay. He spoke in years past. Yeah. Okay. Are you guys? Are you? Have you known him before? Or? I've known David for like what four? Last two six? conferences at least. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, four yeah. plus six years or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Do you? Are you? Do you agree with me that money's going digital soon? Uh, to a large extent, yes. I think it just has to be. Yeah. So this is a sound you're not going to hear very often anymore. <laughs> yeah. Is that a silver dollar? I mean. Uh, uh, Dollar yeah. coin, yeah. I don't even have penny. I mean, there's pennies somewhere in my house, like in a jar. They probably should go in the bank. You know, that we find someplace. 
You know, you don't see pennies. You barely see nickels. I don't know if I've ever seen one. <laughs> my wife calls me a currency eccentric yeah do you collect two dollar bills oh, all the time i used to fact, collect them until a while ago yeah. to tie it to this conference yeah. um at one point i was talking to the conference organizer and he had never seen a two dollar bill before really and the conference registration fee was two hundred dollars so I brought a um, mint pack of brand wow. new sequentially numbered $2 bills That's funny. to pay for the conference registration fee. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I've seen like YouTube videos of people like turning down $2 bills like, oh, this is fake. Get out of here, you thief. You're trying to steal something. It's, oh, it's, uh, it's hilarious. It's hilarious. To I go once, into something like a McDonald's with a dollar coin when they don't have a spot for it in their drawer. Yeah, and they're just like... get uh, the manager. <laughs> they don't know what to do with it. Like, Putting their hands up. Yeah, it's hilarious. We need to call corporate on this. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, anyway, um, well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, I'm sorry, what's your last name? Loundy. David I'm going to edit all that out. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Mr. Loundy. Uh, I, I've learned a lot today. I wish I, wish I came for this... Uh, conference um, yeah. glad to be here yeah, yeah. yeah fantastic thanks thank you oh man well that was a very informative interview um with uh david Lundy. i'm glad you guys enjoyed that what 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 was that you can you can just talk bro uh, <laughs> yeah oh okay uh that was a very informative interview um we have our good friend um what was Robert. his name again robel 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 i had a good friend in um seattle his name was robel too yeah. estefanos it's a yeah, common yeah. name. There's a common name too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. He was. He was. He was like a very dapper dude, Ben. Like he's. He taught me so much about style. Anyway, that's enough. Let's not go into tangents right now. Let's just do this intro. <laughs> and then we can get into his tangents on right. the regular show. So we have one more intro that uh, that we're going through, and uh, Robel is joining us today because he's uh, he's cool and he's just cool like that. We just met him, you know, but we're friendly guys. Um, who's this? Uh, this th- is. Saad Ahmed from Tiny Toronto. From right? Tiny Toronto, yeah. And, you know, really interesting thing is where they had a, a lot of people have room in their backyard, and you can turn or the you know your garage, and you can turn that you know idle space mm. into livable. Not like a little tiny house, which is cramped, but think of like a, a mother-in-law suite or things of that nature. Yeah. Um, but it, it was just. I think people are really going to enjoy it because, you know, they really thought about a lot of aspects to it. And I'm looking forward to the follow-up conversations about it. Yeah. I think you guys are going to enjoy this one. And and he stayed around and he just like shoot the stuff. He was just hanging out, man. (laughs) I was fine with it. He's cool peeps, man. I like to hang out with people. It was a good conversation. Exactly. All right. Enjoy. Uh, Yeah. We got one more mic if um, If if you you want to jump in. Oh, thank you. All right, so we have our second interview. Um, I'm sorry, what was your name, sir? Saad Ahmed. I have Saad Ahmed here. You want to hear how you sound? Sure. Just a little bit. I can't talk with my hear myself. Test, test. Can you, Ooh, you got a deep voice. I know, right? The headset. Yeah, yeah it catches <laughs> more of your voice. Right here. And, uh, <laughs> it's a radio mic, so you can get real close to it. Like, hey, baby, I really love you. You know. You can make me sound that deep. Uh, that wasn't awkward. <laughs> turn up the game, bro. Roll up the game. There's turn a whole running joke we got about the game. Yeah, it's gonna f- get your voice out. So the person, that Barry White action. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but it gets the, the the closer you get, the more depth you have in in the thing. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. a little filter, so it's not gonna catch all the crazy sounds you say. Or you could just grab it and lean that back. You know, yeah, I think whatever. I'm just gonna get comfortable with. My yeah, hands get comfortable. In here. There you go. Because it's gonna sound better. Yeah, when you're yeah. comfortable. You sound a lot better. I also have a good voice for radio, so. It does. Yeah. yeah, you have a great voice. That's just my talent, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
Saad, I gotta pronounce the last name again. Saad Ahmed. Saad Ahmed. 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 Yeah, yeah that's my that's my son's middle name. Okay, so you're gonna say and my brother's name, and my mentor's name. There's a lot of Ahmeds. Well, Ahmed is like one of the most popular names in the world. Now. Pretty much. Yes. Yeah, yeah. so, um, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of stream of consciousness on this uh, podcast. So. Yeah, we do tangents sometimes. It happens. Yeah. So, uh, Sahad Ahmed, there's a Toronto tiny house, correct? A tiny Toronto. Tiny, tiny, tiny Toronto. Toronto. You're from Toronto. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite city. I love, I love Toronto. My wife is Canadian. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. I did it on purpose. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. I love Toronto. It's one of my favorite cities. It really is. I like it there, yeah, but it's it's nice to also see other cities that are around. It was funny when you when we had our chit chat earlier, which just burned a lot of really good content. I wish we were recording it. But um, you know, you're doing a lot of amazing work over there and I just love the thought process and you're here at the you know, this conference and uh, is this your first year at a conference or in person. I, in person. I've been following it online for I can't even count how many years. Hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm lucky. I live in Boston and no, I was, the first time I came I was living in Houston. And I was like, uh, now I live here in Boston again. It's so much easier to attend. But um, enough of that long tangent. Um, let's learn more about <laughs> uh, Tiny Toronto. And, uh, you know, what's your, what was the problem you saw? You know, or it doesn't even have to be that specific. You know, let's learn about more about you and how you came to here in Boston, dropping some amazing information on us, you know. Um, I guess it was a bit of an invitation from a couple of the places here. Um, I was here a couple of days ago presenting at uh, Smart Growth Massachusetts. And Locus is an organization that brings um, innovative developers, urban planners, designers, architects to discuss new ideas that could happen. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about all these new um, incentives that are coming around. And they wanted to see what new things could happen. So they said that they liked the work we're doing in Toronto and it'd be great to present at the event at the Boston Society of Architects. So that was a really nice segue to get in and get all these displays ready. And basically what Tiny Toronto does is builds a small home in the backyard of a large lot in the suburb or the any suburb of a city. And many of the cities like Boston, New York, Toronto are having such crazy rent prices. Yeah. And they're on a runaway train yeah. that yeah. nobody can catch up to with their income growth. And a joke about how um, I'm a Vancouver refugee, because <laughs> <laughs> Vancouver's expensive, man. Yeah, it's as expensive as it can get in North America, but it does not have the income to support that. Hmm. So currently, if you wanted to buy a house, or the average person would have to use eighty, ninety percent of the income towards housing. <laughs> so wow. it's as bad as it could get on yeah. this continent. And basically, it has San Francisco prices without the income. Oh. Hmm. Yeah, that's what justifies the what justice are the foreign investors pushing it up or something uh there's foreign investors and also it's surrounded by water on three sides yeah and then it's just a gorgeous place to be it is yeah so there's just so many factors it's such a desirable city and this is a global trend of people moving to quality cities and they've made the city so beautiful with mm. walkability and bikes and like family life and people are paying premiums to be able to walk to work and what I notice is that these neighborhoods, you'd pay for your car, but not own a car. And you pay for this expensive rent and then walk where you need to go. So that's the dynamic that's popping in in every other city. And that same type of investment looks at Vancouver as a small village. And then it comes to Toronto, it comes to San Francisco, Boston, New York, you name it. Yeah. And it's just driving up the prices where these cities are quite desirable for opportunities. 
and you need solutions around them mm-hmm. and you can build high rise after high rise after high rise because that only perpetuates the problem and some of the solutions that I was really inspired by was what Sydney Australia did because they were the first to receive this type of crazy foreign influx in investments and um, what they did is they call them granny flats there um, but in a granny flat you have all these millennials living in it <laughs> but I don't know what a granny flat means basically means it's a little house for the granny in your backyard you mean like a mother-in-law uh, like part a mother suite mother-in-law part but oh, it's, okay. it's basically like a, a studio apartment with a bedroom or something like yes maybe. yeah 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 like almost like above a garage or something like that so this is now they're building really beautiful fancy homes in that space mm. so it's not worth putting a house on top of a garage in vancouver you take the garage out mm. and they build a brand new 1200 square foot laneway home hmm. Okay. And, and that's like this, you know, it may cost three, four hundred thousand dollars, but you're not wow. going to get a condo of that size for double or triple that price. Yeah. So it's it's been a very interesting dynamic. And I think I want to share the story of one of these innovators in Vancouver that started it about 12 years ago when it wasn't common. And his issue was that his mom needed long term care and it would cost more than one hundred thousand a year. And they figured that take about two and a half years of income or the cost of two and a half years of long-term care and invest it in their backyard. Because it's not an expense anymore, it becomes an investment for the family. And then his mother lived in there for five, six years, then she passed on. And then his kids went to university, so it went on rent. Hmm. And his kids got supported through university because he had rental income coming in from the backyard. Nice. Yeah. And um, then his kids boomerang back after university. Mm-hmm. And they found themselves and their partners and they lived there for a couple of years and then they went moved on too. And now the city of Vancouver is talking about that if you had built this laneway home in your backyard and they have such crazy prices today, they're allowing people to sell their backyard home separately. So maybe 12 years ago, that backyard home was worth a million, the whole home was worth a million dollars. And and today, you can sell the backyard home alone for a million dollars. That's amazing. That's, like, that's crazy. Wow. So basically, if you have a backyard in the inner city, you just might be having the biggest lottery ticket possible. Yeah, yeah. And just the right to build in your backyard makes your property appreciate by an insane amount of value. Mm, mm. Because you're not allowed to do it before, but if a bunch of neighborhoods organize themselves and say, we have these large backyards that we don't want to cut the grass on and keep the dilapidated garage storing things we don't need, all of a sudden, the value of all the homes in the neighborhood can go up because you have this new right to build in your backyard. So what kind of permitting and that kind of stuff so uh, the b- obstacles have you run into? So there's no shortage of that. And the cities and municipalities have all the NIMBYism you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And California has been working through this for 15 years. Yeah. And the governor pushed a law that in, came into effect in 2017, allowing every homeowner to apply for a permit directly to the state if your municipality frustrated you. Oh, wow. And they did an override. And every municipality in California (laughs) is going through an emergency ordinance to comply with the state law. Yeah. And that's just the brilliant Because everyone's just going over their head. Yeah, yeah. and and now the municipality wants them to comply to them, Mm -hmm. and they want to obey the state. So they're figuring out how to add all this affordable housing stock. And the reason I bring California in it, because have more backyards in California than all of Canada. <laughs> really? Well, Canada is... How, how many people are in Canada? It's not a lot. 35 million. Yeah, okay. And California it. is 38 million. Yeah. But California is very suburban. Sure. 
mm. and it's very low rise, so yeah, it's, it's exceptional. Very spread out, yeah. And it really works for LA and San Francisco to have really high rent pressures mm. and allows you to do these things. And LA has done even more innovative things where uh, maybe an old house is near the subway station and you have a builder that will take it out for $1.6 million and he builds six little bungalow courts mm. and they're all individual houses on the same court. Oh, are these like those tiny houses I've seen online or is this so, a little better than that? It's a much better than that because okay. the ones you see on TV are, are a bit of a pipe dream and it's on wheels. Yeah, they yeah. look really small. <laughs> and and they're more like RVs. And the thing is, you have to realize that those tiny homes you see on TV yeah. is a reaction to the housing and the financial crisis yeah, and exactly. recession. Yeah. They're identifying the symptom, but they're not the cure. Yeah. Okay. Right? And it tells you people will go so far to house themselves affordably to get out of trouble. Yeah, exactly. But you need to support them in other creative ways. So because everybody cannot do that type of lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really unreasonable expecting an older person to climb up a ladder to go to sleep or come down and all these yeah. things. And um, this whole aging in place is a really big dynamic because you have all the baby boomers that are about to retire and they're going up and down this big home with two, three sets of stairs and the knees don't want it anymore. Yeah. But they might have made a beautiful garden in the backyard and the home's the best asset that they own and they don't want to leave the neighborhood. Yeah. So they can essentially create their own retirement cottage in their backyard and move in there and collect rent from the front of the house. All right. So Tiny Toronto, how does how do you guys help people to do that? So what we did is we mapped out over the last five years with a pretty large team now that came from all over the U.S. and Europe and Canada mm. to do the work on it. And what we did first was we mapped out all the lots in the city. And we found that there's 100,000 backyards that are overly generous and within the city limits where you just have a metro pass and you can get into the city and um, they're just sitting idle. And the homeowner owns it outright yeah. and it's private. Yeah. So it doesn't have these hurdles. And, and the real inspiration, like I was just going back to Sydney, Australia, they built 7,000 granny flats in 18 months. And how they did that was by having a 10-day permit process. So homeowners say, I want to build it. And the 10th day, you have a permit to build it. Hmm. And and that allowed such a huge influx of these uh, granny flats to be built, as they call it there. And this is the fun part, the effect it had on condo rent. Because Sydney was facing like 1,800, 1,900, 2,000, 2,100, 2,200. And all of a sudden, each year, that $100 bump was just bumping people out of their neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah. So this innovation on allowing a new type of housing brought diversity in stock into the market. Mm. And people were renting these granny flats for $1,400, dollars $1,600. And guess what? The condo rent started dropping. <laughs> okay. Yeah. They came yeah. to 21 2000 They came under 2000 And that's the beauty of it. So even the laneway homes, they're not solving all the problems, but adding more diversity and stock into the market. It's taking the pressure off. It's tapering. You you know what you would get for $2,100 in Boston? You're staying in the hood. You you, you can't live (laughs) in the You're Downtown Boston right now, well, the seaport is six. $5,000, $6,000. Seaport's the most expensive property in the United States right now. Um, The downtown Boston, what, $5,000 rent? Downtown Boston is eleven, twelve thousand dollars a month. Oh my, yeah. My God. Yeah, that's uh, crazy. The downtown South Boston. End. I have a client who's paying $25,000 a month for, I mean, it's it's balling. It is balling. But, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not regular by any means, but right. 
so you can imagine the pressures that you're having so when you go into the neighborhoods and we showed the the graph earlier boston's highly separate uh, segregated Mm -hmm. by a race and also by income Mm um there's a and we have this pressure with these huge demand of universities we have the most universities in the greater boston area than arguably anywhere in the world there's probably somebody in china beating us now right now but we have two hundred and fifty thousand new university students each year Mm -hmm. Um, many of them are from all any place else they have no idea what the pricing is yeah we love them but they do drive up the rents yeah so they move into neighborhoods because before you know 10 15 years ago the kids would not go into black and latino neighborhoods but now they're like they just grew up being in a more mixed community Mm. so they live in what would be the hood and you got some kid from like you know iowa someplace in Dudley Square, which if you're from Boston, you know, is it's, it's the hood. It's the hood. I live down the street from there. <laughs> it's uh, like if you're not from there, you like, and you're seeing, you know, girls from Iowa who are not Irish. Like if I saw an Irish girl at eleven o'clock at night, I'm not worried about it. She's from Boston, but I see a girl that's clearly from like, you know, Minnesota. Yeah, like, like jogging, jogging. <laughs> I'm. I was perplexed. I literally stopped and said, "Why?" Are, uh, I, I'm from. Uh, at the time, I was living in Four Corners. This is another. Um, is that? Yeah, it's the hood. It's the hood. Yeah. But you know, my family's from there, so it's not the hood to me. And um, I was confused. Like everyone literally stopped on the street and was like, "What the hell is going on?" <laughs> Couldn't process it. But the like, housing pressure was so real. She can have a much better quality house. She, I. I didn't talk to her. I talked to um, someone similar, and they were like, "Oh, I, I bought a condo, which would have been a whole floor of the houses, because now the condo goes for the same price as the house. So, like my grandmother's house, which is those three-story tenement houses that are really common here in Boston. Um, yeah. You mm-hmm. used to be able to go the the triple deckers. Um, sometimes they have one porch. My grandmother's that neighborhood has two porches, front and back." So they are worth a lot more. They used to be about three hundred thousand dollars total. A few years, you could sell three to four hundred thousand dollars per floor now, and yeah. people are paying for it. But this probably has a pretty decent backyard. Um, yeah, and some because those the are play, larger problems. Like I'm renting a house right now. It has a huge backyard, and you could totally fit. You could fit another house the size of the house we're living in back there. Um, I don't know why no one's thought of that because that's a great idea. And like totally rent it out. Probably like to build it would probably be a couple hundred thousand. That's but right. My, yeah. What I'm what I'm thinking about is like just the perm like permit things in Boston are a nightmare to do anything. <laughs> That's the case in every city. Yeah. But the fun part is that because California passed that law mm. and is a leader in it. Yeah. The only two states making serious considerations around it are Massachusetts and New York. Mm. And as you just described, these insane rents. They're the drivers where they have to deliver solutions to the citizens, because people are living leaving these states to go to cheaper states, and you're losing all their income and productivity out of the state. You might have educated them; they wanted to pay off the loans and work here and buy a house, but when they can't, people leave. So yeah. there was a backlash here where you had people who, from the community, no matter the ethnicity, Irish, Italian, West Indians, the Caribbean. Um, who were saying, look, we just spent all this money from our tax dollars and our community effort to clean up these communities and now we can't afford to live in them? And you get political backlash because they're still voting. So they were um, they were really, really 
concerned about that because sometimes they were fleeing, but sometimes those people were who were on the cusp were delaying improvements because they're upset. They're like, I want them my neighborhood to improve, but I actually want it to still be my neighborhood. How can I stay there? One of the pressures you get in here, here in Boston is Boston is has a high level of rentals. Yeah, and people rent here. I think it's ninety eight percent occupancy in Boston, or it's it's really high. Like very low, like one or two percent vacancy rate, right? So it's a high pressure, like high area. pressure, and um, you have the college demand, and then you have the the it's, people who who rent for like twenty, thirty years. It's know? definitely a seller's market, if that makes any sense in real estate terms. So they the 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 person who owns the property is is reaping all kinds of wars because the rents just go up and up and up and up because people are always willing to come fill it. Always, always a more and more students coming and then they have no idea what rents are and the parents just write the check so of course the rents go up so with tiny toronto do you have so I'm, I'm a little unclear maybe you explained it and i'm just dense and i missed it do you do you guys help them with the permit process when people want to do that that's right because a homeowner is not going to be able to go through all the hassle that are related to building a home yeah they're busy so, paying their mortgage with two three jobs so yeah. you, the idea is to provide a turnkey solution and by the way we're called tiny toronto but yeah. we've also registered boston tiny because the purpose is that once you figure out the pipeline and the complexity. Boston Tiny? Yeah, that's right. Why not Tiny Boston? That was taken. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Okay. But yeah. we'll claim it back real soon as we are able Someone's to. Someone's going to sell it to yeah, you yeah. for like a marked up price. That's right. But um, but the idea is that when you, the market dictates what gets done. Yeah. yeah. So when these homes for your grandma were $300,000, nobody would ever think about building a $300,000 home in the backyard. Yeah. No. Exactly. But now, because the whole unit's worth a million, mm. that's actually the tipping point. The million dollars is the tipping point. Because it makes sense to invest 20, 30% in your backyard for a brand new dwelling next to something that's really old. Because everybody likes new buildings. So th- what, I, what I foresee happening, and it's because I just know Boston and I know the type of city it is, does that house become its own separate entity? Or... Like something, no. can, so, so how, it stays a part of, it's the, part of the of first the par- parcel. That's exactly <clears throat> it. So instead of a single detached home, mm-hmm. it becomes a double detached home. Ah. Single deed, single owner, and that single homeowner decides who gets to live there and how it gets used. So that single homeowner can't decide, hey, I'm going to just sell this part because I need some money. I'm going to sell this house in the backyard because it's mine. I can do whatever I want. That person can't do that. So generally, the cities that allow these laws from mm-hmm. Vancouver, Sydney, the first thing you had to sign off is that you don't have the intention of separating the lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, given pressures that these cities are facing, mm-hmm. that can change, just like it gave you the Vancouver example. But they put conditions like you said, the, na- the homeowner cannot maintain their home uh, and they, they won't do it just to improve the neighborhood. So the conditions in Vancouver were if you improved the condition of the front home and brought it back to character, then mm-hmm. only would you be allowed to sell the rear yard. So that way they got the whole neighborhood to get restored and they rewarded the individual homeowners that did that. Got it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's a, it's kind of, if you want to re- reward uh, the windfall, then you kind of have to do the work for it. I wonder, because there's a lot of, um, his, many of the properties here in Boston are historical or close yes. to being historical. Um, you know, there's a, the tenement houses that I described, like my grandma's and so forth, were built in like 1900, 1910, 1920. Yep. Uh, they were mainly built by like the Jewish community and the Irish community. You can tell which community built it by highest design. And right. then you had um, other houses built in like the 1880s. Which, what, what year was your house built in that you're in? Um, originally, like, you know, the 50s, but then they rebuilt it in like 
the okay. 90s. Okay. Yeah. That's the way it looks. But almost everything is like 100 years old. That's very common to have a 100-year-old house. Yeah, and they're, they're big on maintaining the facade. You can do a little whatever mm-hmm. you want to do with the interior. Yeah. Um, you got to keep that outside. Yeah. Stock, bro. And yeah. a lot of the conditions that are allowed him is that the small house will maintain the character of the neighborhood. Okay. Because so that's to be the same. And, yeah. and, and I've got to have some fun with this that, you know, I'm not so worried about what's on the outside. I'm more interested in what's in the inside. Yeah. And especially around new energy efficiencies and new building technologies. Yeah, but yeah. you can make the skin whatever you like. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of flexibility in what the outlook can be. So that's why I look at this that maybe the house is even built in, the, in, a, in a regional factory. And it's done in a controlled environment, you know, where you don't have to deal with the weather. And, um, and, and when the house comes to your site, there's a lot of these components are pre-built. So it's only disturbing for days or weeks rather than months and years. Mm. And that's what allows like a mass adoption. And if you're going around to a neighborhood and everybody's signing up for it, like you all voted yourself up a property value increase by creating this new right to build. Yeah. So when people were not allowed to rent their basements or attics, the price did not reflect it. But once they're allowed to convert them into separate units, the yeah. prices start reflecting the new rental income that they could incur. Yeah, yeah. So, wow. this has cool. been a, this has been a very informative uh, interview. Thank yeah. you. I'm actually going to suggest this to my uh, the person I rent my house from because you got a huge backyard, so you could totally do that. Yeah, yeah. But you were also saying that there were some other aspects of your project, like how you came into this, come into tiny homes and. Dealing with these pressures, like your glo- your worldview, not just on, on this individual project. I was, I was like, yeah, I'm 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 really bothered by like, um, I mean, I thought Toronto was segregated. Oh shoot! Oh, uh, meter. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, they will get you in Boston. Well, it's uh, fun. Uh, I love it because that's a good topic to talk about parking, because one of the biggest resistance we faced in Toronto when we're trying to propose this to the suburbs is that you know everybody has a car. So you're going to create a parking lot in the front lot. So we did a case competition at university, and we tried to come up with solutions around it. And it was as simple as creating a car share in your driveway. Really? And if you have three, four units, and you have two, three cars in the front, and those are shared cars that you can use at other times, you have companies like GM coming up with their Maven plan, where you can sign up for free and be a lifetime member to have a car rental. They would love to pay you rent to park their car on your driveway that people can use. So as these technologies are changing, like homeowners don't need to own the depreciating asset, which is the car, but they can have their investment in the house, which is really ownership. Oh, so you're, you're seeing how... And, and it's so fun because the ones on wheels get towed every three days because you're not allowed to park an RV on the street for a certain amount of time. So it's fun that you're going and going moving your car because anybody that builds homes on wheels has that same challenge they got to move it all the time really because you're not allowed to do it and when you put it on wheels it becomes an rv oh yeah yeah, yeah. and when you're asking me the whole journey you that's what you see on tv and that's part of the pipe dream but i called it a symptom and the real solution is to put it on a foundation yeah pay taxes collect rent be code following and be fire safety there's just been this huge demand for not just housing and innovation ideas so when you were talking about earlier about walking communities yes when you go to the economic development planning stuff, which are not the most exciting meetings, but they're really critical, that's what they're talking about. Bikeable communities, walking communities. Um, but they've struggled to make sure those communities are inclusive. So if you deal with a person with disabilities, you're dealing with uh, economic inclusive, inclusivity, um, 
it, it's it's been a challenge. It's been a challenge because not everyone's in, not everyone's at the table. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people don't know that table exists. You mm-hmm. know, I'm really interested in the, like. I think that's an opportunity for homeowners because I've heard some interesting things with like I never heard about that Maven before. If you can explain that Maven car share by GM, that would be really. How does that work? So GM is basically trying to make all these electric cars and those are really well shareable because, you know, they're online and you can do these tap open the cars and all these other things with yeah. your phone. It's much like your bike share plan. Yeah. But now you don't have to own individual cars because like my friend Cliff here, I don't know if this guy's ever going to buy a car. He's probably that's, just going to tap and open that's, it. That's a good, that's actually a really good idea. Cause I, have, I think I know where you're going with the Maven thing because when, we we uh, when I was in Atlanta a couple weeks ago, there's like these uh, scooters around town that you could just use your phone and connect to them. And uh, you just take a picture of your driver's license mm-hmm. and then it unlocks the, the, and you just pay for however long you use it. Oh, that's awesome. But like, I never thought about that for a car. That's genius. I mean, it's like, it sounds like what Netflix and Redbox did to uh, Blockbuster. Very much. And, and basically it creates a network of cars. It reduces the demand and cars sit idle for more than 90% of the time. And it's expensive insurance, gas, maintenance, you name it, and the reliability and the stress and the traffic, it just drops it all. And it's pay per use. But you need a diversity of things. It's not just you need shared cars, you need shared bikes. Maybe it's electric bikes now, as you got electric mm-hmm. cars, so it gives you a bit better range to get to the transit stop. And a lot of the transit doesn't get built because there's not enough density in those neighborhoods. But if you're creating three times density in the same single lot, that totally changes the factor because maybe these homes only have uh, 10 homes per acre as a suburb but all of a sudden if you have 30 homes per acre that's what you need as a minimum to run uh, a light rail or subway line in that direction so it really makes a lot of the economics work for for the state level where they're trying to measure these things so it's almost a prelude to bring better transit to these neighborhoods because transit end of the day has to follow economics yeah you can have politics play for a short while but what prevails over the long term is the economics of the neighborhood if you have the people riding the transit, they have to provide that service. And I think those are some of the things they'll sum up in all these things from these scooters, bike shares, car shares, and then even different types of transit things coming up. And there's a whole diversity of these things because these phones that we have now are, as you were saying, are as powerful than a computer that we owned a little while ago. And they can connect us to so more things that, like I'm having the best time using blue bikes in the city right now. <laughs> yeah, they're cool. They're <laughs> awesome. Like th- it works really well in the rain. The brakes feel safe. I've never had a flat tire on it, and it's got a nice basket for me to put my bag in. It's faster than transit or driving at rush hour. Yeah, and I, I like I get my exercise in, which I, I don't I'm, otherwise. I'm wishing that blue bike. So when I was in, I was in Shanghai and in uh, Guangzhou. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Back 2011. What I liked about what they were doing is that their bike system. Is connected to their transit system. So you come right off the train, grab a bike, use the same pass, bam, grab the bike, bike around, you return it to the next train stop, wherever you're going, or bike, bus, they have a lot of bikes. Mm-hmm. You just drop it off and you continue on. And it's part of the transportation system. It's not just there. I would, um, I would like Boston to be able to, in the region, to get incorporated to that. I think that will make the next step. Was um, that in their effort to reduce the uh what's the word i'm looking for here the pollution no actually uh china has a bike riding culture okay. they had more bikes than cars they were 
later to so what before the 80s or something you didn't have a lot of personal home mm. uh ownership of cars and obviously that's increased as they're recovered economically and diverse but they still have a culture of bike riding so if you watch a lot of chinese movies and um asian sitcoms because of netflix i get to watch a lot of them they have this you know going on a bike ride it's romantic and for us like if i'm watching like a 19 you know a movie's kind of set in like 1974 or 62 that sounds cool like right now i'm like what are you gonna go on a bike ride you know this is a first date or something it's a different culture so biking is bigger there but it's gonna get a lot cooler when these electric bikes come out Oh, I like the electric bikes, man. Because the thing is, it totally changes the range. That hill doesn't look so bad anymore. Yeah. Oh, the, <laughs> they got the electric bikes there, or like support. Like you can be biking, and then when you need to, it kicks in. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly it. Yeah, which is good for older people. But think about it. You're not going to arrive at your appointment any bit sweaty or out of shape, right? So you can actually use of a daily commute. You're not going to say, I'm going to get on a bus because I got to look good to get to work, and I don't want to take a shower when I get there. Because the electric bike pumps you out through those places where you get enough exercise at the same time. You can sweat it out on the way back if you're interested. But it gives you that flexibility that we didn't have before. And I think you need to have a diversity of options, and that's what makes us rich. But if you can only move with your car, some people are facing poverty that, you know, they got to get into the car to go get a gallon of milk. And they got to burn a couple of dollars of gas to get their gallon of milk. That's a difference, poverty by distance and transit accessibility. Yeah. And we still have some food deserts here. I mean, there are areas in many major metropolitan areas, Boston included, New York, where there's not access to uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. You know, there's a lot of programs about doing that. So it's interesting that how Tiny Houses is helping with this and thinking about transportation. You're really thinking about it holistically, and that's kind of cool. At a neighborhood level, because the grocery store can step in when you have at least 10,000 uh, roofs. And if that neighborhood has three or 4,000 roofs and you're able to add these different type of units, it might be able to get its own grocery store. So like, okay. so those are the dynamics. The grocery store doesn't exist today because it's not economically feasible. And the moment that you have the density, it'll show up itself. What are your thoughts about um, the growing demand of, or the idea of reimagining rather transportation and cars where cars and electricity we see we used to see cars as a, a use of electricity so i'm going to be home or energy mm-hmm. put some gas in it i'm going to go to x won't come back electric car in the beginning was kind of the same thing i'm going to charge my car at home i'm going to drive some other place and i'm going to maybe charge my car there as opposed to saying that electric cars or your laptop your cell phone they're actually their demand on electricity, but when they go back into the grid, they're actually providing electric. Think once they're charged, you know. So idle bus stops for school buses can be, if they're electric, they can be charging on solar power, but they can also provide, sta- you know, stable power to the grid. Um, cars moving them back, once they're there and they're charged, they're not supplying power or or a capacity, capacitance to the grid. And I'm really excited about that because now we're just, you know, paying for your meter. I hate paying for parking. Yeah. I took you, man, out of the place. I, I, I don't see any value in it, right? It's a good place for municipalities to make money, but it doesn't add any value to us at all. But if I'm paying for parking and I'm charging my car, 
That's kind of interesting. But even the car charger is going to speed up, and you don't want to sit around waiting your car to charge because you know they'll reduce it from four hours to half an hour to fifteen minutes. Like it'll it'll start dropping, and what will happen soon enough is that there's a break because the the mechanical cars that took gas was part of the third industrial revolution. Yes, and we don't know what the fourth industrial revolution looks like, and it's not about mass production, but rather mass customization. And you can think about the house that was cookie cutter without enough thought put into it. But what if all the thought was put into it and it used each lot's lighting and shading and trees and respected the land? And that is possible now in the fourth industrial revolution. So when I take electric cars, there's going to be a whole mindset shift because the way you use your desktop computer is different how you use your laptop computer. Because you would think you do the same things, but now you pick up your computer and go to the person and do it with them. You wouldn't do that with your desktop. You had to invite somebody to your desktop to be able to do that. Yeah. So the car was like, they come pick me up. And then you have to drive over and pick somebody else up. But in electric cars, sure, the cars are going electric, but as fast as they go electric, this self-driving component is coming in. So you don't have parking meters, and you're not paying for parking. You're just paying for use. We, we went on the whole talk, the whole uh, subject about uh, paying for parking. Did you make it in time? Uh, no, but <laughs> I found another parking space. That was so people who don't know, or for our listeners, uh, Greater Boston is very aggressive in uh, um, ticketing and towing. Ticketing and towing. So, There's a whole cabal behind it. So we're, we're talking about California and Canada, right? 35 million, 38 million. I'm just going to take my headphones. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's cool. Mm. Yeah, just go ahead. Help yourself. Don't even ask. It's all right. <laughs> I'm just playing. Oh, no. No, I was just, just, I was just listening. I'm just playing. Okay. No, no, no. Grab them. So, so Tokyo as a city has more people than the state of California and the country of Canada. Well, the city wow. has more than the whole Tokyo Canada. The most, this is the largest mega city on earth right now, and it's no competition. Like, wow. The next one's like 10 million behind. So Tokyo has more than 39 million people in it. That's right. That is insane. That's a lot of people. But guess what? Housing is quite cheap there. Is it? You talk about parking. So an average person in Tokyo that drives to work yeah. might move the car five or six times through the day. Wow. So you got a deal there. We just did it once. Wow. But they had that pain to design the car away to do all these transit lines by creating yeah, yeah, the density yeah, yeah, yeah. so people can move easily. So they really want it to be an inconvenience for the cars to make room for people, essentially. Then they're, and they're taking notice of that. And it works. And they're yeah. removing it out because it's such an expensive affair to pay for a car. Yeah. But why would you pay for a car where you could put a house in that space? Exactly. Because now where I want to build is where the garage used to exist. And you'd build a car in a factory mm-hmm. and store it in the garage. But you don't need to store cars anymore. They'll go away when they're not needed. Yeah. And then the garage space becomes available to put a home there. And that allows the density for all this car sharing and alternative transit and everything else to come in. Because mm-hmm. I saw a new... I don't know how new they are. Um, an app, car sharing company that shares your car, mm-hmm. which is hilarious. So they have this one ad. I don't know on, if I'd be open to that though. So <laughs> sharing my so, own personal car. Oh, so there, here's the ad that um, is a picture. It's on the red line, which I see often coming up here. And that's sorry, everyone. That was my watch. It's um, this guy says, Gary just proposed to Cindy with your car. And thanks to you. He had this, you know, they they proposed. They went had their weekend getaway, and 
Gary proposed to Cindy or something like that. And um, someone put some graffiti that was really hilarious about, about something else. <laughs> yeah, about something else. Right? That's exactly what I thought of when I saw that. But you're seeing that people are thinking, okay, I have this asset. It's depreciating. I need to be getting more value from this than other than I go from work or go out and I still want the convenience. I still want the convenience of being able to go where, where I want to go when I want to go and carry as much stuff as I think I need. Mm. And I don't, and I want to have the choice. So I want to drive, I want to Uber it, Lyft, you know, bike sheer, catch the train, walk. I want all those choices and they need them to fit into my life. And we're still struggling to see how that really looks. So my experience when I was visiting San Francisco is uh, one of my friends picked up one of these cars you're describing. Mm. And, and the person who put this car on rent was um, a young graduate. He had a starter job. And he's like, you know, I got some credit. And if I can get a car on $300 a month and make 600 off it, I have a slight income coming in. And sure. I have pocket money to have entertainment. Sure, yeah. And uh, he put his car on, but if his car is missing, he just takes another car on rent. <laughs> and what that does is it really, like, it's, he's not so attached to the car anymore. Yeah. He's not using it all the time. I just think the American, the, that's a... That's going to be a that'd shift. That will be a shift. Americans are very attached to their cars um, for no reason, really. But No, uh, no, for good, for good reason, because mm-hmm. they need it to get to where they need to go, and those are far from any other option of transit. No, but times. there's a lot of vanity involved in uh, America's love affair with cars. You know, sure. I mean, it's, it's a global the, thing. It's, yeah. it's part of your identity, your first date. You know, the f- it, was a, it was a sign of your yeah, yeah. freedom and independence. That's right. And, that's right. And... Your status, I can afford. The more money you got, the better your car got. You know, the first car, That's teenagers, right. you might have been something you passed down or. Oh no, I remember when I started lobby. working as a thirteen-year-old and saved my money and I bought the car uh, weeks before uh, my license. And on the day really? I got my license, uh, I got insurance and I went drove to work at noon mm. in my car and it was like washed and cleaned yeah. and everything else. You and like, you're right because. Yeah. The moment I got the car, I could go to places where I could work and earn more money than in my local neighborhood, and my income went up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it was funny enough. Um, I bought an old Porsche. That was my second car. Wow. And you're and, a balling kid, huh? Yeah. And, 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 and the funny part is that in that car, I realized that it's not a good idea to buy a used old German car. No, no, the parts no. are expensive. I would just sit in the in the driveway and we'd bump up the boombox, and my dad told me that you're not gonna get that car insured until you sell the first one. And I didn't want to sell the first one cheap because, like, I thought it was worth something. And that car broke down sitting in my driveway. Wow! <laughs> wow! <laughs> yeah, that's an old Porsche for you. But hmm. that reminded me, like it made me, it made a pretty strong impression about old cars, just generally. Hmm. That some cars work, some don't, and I survived on many, many other cars that came after that. And uh, I had to get rid of that car because I had to go back to college after high school. Yeah. And um, all these old cars with problems, like when you look at these electric cars, they have like a hundred fewer parts in them. So the amount of breakdown is a lot less. The maintenance is a lot less. Yeah. Like your laptop doesn't break down and have errors like your desktops used to. No, man, I, tell me about I it. I got yeah. a steady state laptop before. Uh, Solid state. Oh, oh yeah, Solid man. State. And it's, it's magic. It's magic, man. Yeah. It just flows so fast yeah, that yeah, yeah. it's there for you. And, you know, it was so difficult getting the mouse to do all these clicks. Now you just touch your screen. Yeah. Right? So all of these things, it's not that people will become more sophisticated. The, the technology will become simpler. 
So to bring it back to Tiny Toronto, you, so you think this is the wave of the future? So I want to uh, like swing from electric cars to electric homes. Mm. Yeah, oh, like so that. you're not just the permitting process. You don't just assist with that. You help from beginning and end to end. Yes, because okay. the homeowner is too busy doing two, three jobs to pay their mortgage, mm -hmm. and they need a turnkey solution. Well, most homes are electric. What do you, what do you mean? So part of it is that um, you have gas heating, which is a prime thing in the yeah. winter. Yeah. And all these homes that are built before are quite drafty. Yeah. And to give you an example, an old home may have five air cycles an hour. And if you build something new, there may be three air cycles an hour. And if it's built to some extra sustainable lead efficiency, it'll be two air cycles an hour. Mm. But I'm, what I'm most interested in is this thing called the passive house standards that developed in Germany and Austria and northern Italy. And that has 0.5 air cycles per hour. Mm. So it's literally using one-tenth the energy. Okay, so these are energy efficient greenhouses. It's almost like extreme efficiency on yeah, energy, yeah. and and it's basically a, a wooden balloon of air tightness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It becomes so airtight that even your body heat becomes a factor in it. Wow. And you have very little heat, but I because like it doesn't leak, yeah, it doesn't need to be. And when you talk about Boston being old, these houses were made drafty because you used to have fireplaces inside. Yeah, right. Internal pollution, you had to keep it down. And the, the bricks would get wet and the interior would get wet and like seasonally things would change and the house needed to be breathable and there's a whole technology around that You're that right. survived yeah. for hundreds of years. Yeah. So I have no interest in adding to that old unit and I don't have free land or open land in the city Yeah. and I sure as hell can't pay for it. So I've yeah. been thinking for a really long time, where can I build this new type of homes and get really prime land? And that's why this whole backyard kind of thing came up. And I wouldn't want to build the old way anymore because then this allows you to use new materials that are you yeah. know, using wood. Absolutely. It looks gorgeous inside with the interior. Yeah. And um, it has all this efficiency built in and also has a lot of wellness in it mm. because all of a sudden your window is your heating appliance because it'll heat the floor from the right angle and you have a proper winter solar window. So yeah. that'll heat at the winter angle and that heat gets stored in the floor and it makes you feel really comfortable inside the house and you don't have to hear the HVAC yeah, running yeah. through so the sound drops the air quality improves and in hospitals what happens is that you have a, some sickness going on the second floor and the HVAC takes it through it makes everybody equally sick yeah, <laughs> yeah. let's all get sick mm -hmm. off of it and this separates all of those things so there's a lot of quality in these things mm -hmm. that we just don't notice like there's a lot of things you and, and i keep coming back to the laptop analogy because when you used to build your old wall mm -hmm. it'd be like your old desktop you put in the motherboard and you slap on the video card and the sound card yeah and that's how you build homes and all these new drywall layers of this blah 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 yeah but when you have an integrated motherboard in your laptop it's much different than your desktop so think about the housing shift going from these thick walls that are done so manually into done something in a more intricate way in a factory that goes and gets assembled on site. Where can our listeners go to see more about more information? TinyToronto.com? TinyToronto.com and the brief is TinyTO.ca. And uh, if you're a bit more curious on how the zoning planning works, you can mm -hmm. hit the research tab and you'll see some amazing work done by Kelsey. She kind of basically created the future guidelines for backyard homes and she studied 10 cities that did this. And then Marcus built off it and created a neighborhood view. So if somebody's mm -hmm. thinking, how do I talk to my neighbors and what's going to look like? And because every lot is different. Yeah. And then Justin added to it with a lot level 
review. So he picked a neighborhood and he classified them to six different types of lots. And he showed you what different lots could entertain. Hmm. Is uh, is Boston Tiny up and ready to go or not yet? No, no, it's not up yet. But um, Boston Tiny looks like it's time for Boston Tiny to come online this week. I think it's a great idea, man. I I think think we're ready for it here. We would love to be helpful in that in any way. Uh, I know... um, I want to send a couple of shout outs for some people that really allowed for, for me to come out here. And so there's Bill Wendell. Um, who's a who's a planner here, and uh, he's been planning for as a, as long as I've been around, and uh, he really gets this whole Boston ecology. Mm-hmm. And we met at uh, the Boston Impact Hub, and uh, that's where I met Ruthie Woods, who also came out to the event. Ruthie and all of us, I know people south of the river and north of the river where the culture is so different. And what my personal passion around social finance and community building is. You may have somebody sitting in Cambridge. I love your idea, but you're never going to build in my backyard because I like my privacy. Some people are like that, but you'd be surprised how many are open to it. And, and yeah. Yeah, But I want to play on a little bit. Let's say somebody has the money and the income and the wealth and they want to maintain their privacy. Wonderful. Mm. But they may be willing to invest in another part of the city. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Where their owner is land rich but cash poor. Sure. And what I really want to facilitate is that the investor part, maybe they could take half the rent, the landowner gets one third of the rent, and Boston Tiny facilitates that whole process in an ongoing way for one sixth of that portion. Sure. And what that does is that people that don't have capital in their neighborhoods would be squeezed out of it can retain themselves there. And maybe the third of the rent comes is like, you don't have to pay your property taxes now because that gets covered by that. Yeah. So the stress of like losing your home drops. And what if they end up moving into that unit and renting the main house? So maybe they can really reduce their cost for energy and everything, mm-hmm. and they have rental income against it. Yeah. But they would not be able to move into the backyard because they're probably not going to want to move into the basement or attic. But a brand new dwelling in their backyard is more attractive than anything they've had before, and especially on a grandma situation with a granny flat option where it's all on the same floor and uh, you can walk out and not have any ramps or anything. Yeah. That is really where I think that some of the opportunities lie. Well, I think that you have a winning uh, strategy or winning business here. If like the scariest part of all this is not the building process, it's not you know getting the loan or getting the, the, the money to build, it's the permitting, I'm telling you. I know Bostonians were scared of the permitting process. But so if you can streamline through that, you can, you'll definitely have business here for sure. So just to shout out to James Chen, yeah. who came from China, and in September he presented a 300 square foot plug-in house at City City Hall mm. right here in Boston. Yeah, and uh, they started having feedback, and one of our organizers at the event, uh, Omar, was talking about um, how he worked at uh, the Housing Innovation Lab. Yeah, and they were doing ADUs inside the house, so they would not be separated. But these are the things that go step by step. Mm-hmm. And once they have gone through that process, like oh well, this worked and that didn't, yeah, then they'll consider the next step. What if you give them full privacy with a separate unit? Yeah. So yeah. those shifts are coming, and quite honestly, like working on this for this is the sixth year, and I thought this would be a six-month project in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 guess what? Like we had our mayoral elections there just uh, earlier this week on Monday, and um, there's just a lot of focus on other issues. Yeah. But Boston is moving ahead with these things. So yeah. I, I just figured that I can't sit around where they're not talking about it. I got to be where they are talking about it. Yeah. So as surprising <clears throat> as you're talking about, 
this is more invitational for me than Toronto. Mm. And this issue you're talking you about. Move here, man. Just come on. Let's, let's I think I just did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we we we've been talking. Um, you know, on a foundation for the green future, one of the nonprofits I'm a pleasure to work with. Um, we've just been talking to the, the zoning boards and having these types of discussions, and, and the challenge with permitting because they realize it. It was like it should not be. Uh, you shouldn't hate permitting. It shouldn't be the easiest thing in the world, but it should be clear. And concise and, and it's clear not. rules like what was Australia's magic in Sydney was clear rules. Mm. And to give you an example, um, uh, one or Marvin came from Australia in uh, 2017 winter to work at Tiny Toronto and I really felt we dug through halfway across the world to Australia when he came. <laughs> and what he was telling me everywhere he walked in Toronto, all the buildings and the high rises being built have a zoning amendment where they get an exemption from the law. And he's like, What's going on here? This would never be in Australia. They set the rules and you have to follow them. Mm. How come everybody gets an exemption? And somebody explained, well, well, this is Boston's very much like that too when they're building the high rises to get an exemption, whatever existed before. Yeah, yeah, exemption or variance or something like that. And when you create clear, clear rules, that's when the magic happens. And I think um, if there's a counselor or a, a person that's looking about zoning and planning, please have a look at Kelsey's work on the research paper. Mm. She compares 10 cities in a 10 uh, spreadsheet deck with all the specific issues relevant to council yeah and it's like a cheat sheet where you can work through it within half an hour and get all your answers and that's the type of uh like technical capital that we're bringing to the table yeah. of having studied the 10 other cities that have done it successfully and how it could be adopted right across the suburbs of north america and boston could be that leader awesome fantastic I mean, I learned a lot today. I learned a lot earlier. Saad Ahmed. That's right, sir. It's been a pleasure. Thank Likewise, you for joining thank us. Thank you so much. The Not Done Podcast. We'll send you a link when it's ready and up. That's very exciting. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Next time we're in Toronto, we'll, uh, we'll go eat or something. <laughs> that, that'd be lovely. Love to have you there. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it was exploitation. Yeah. You know? It was terrible. Yeah, if he wasn't famous and you did that to some, if someone, did that to someone, they'd be like, yo, that that's a... That was just some crazy homeless babble, bro. That's all that was. Yeah. Like that was some really messed up stuff, man. All right, welcome back. I'm glad you enjoyed that uh, that interview with Saad Ahmed. Man, he's cool. I like that guy. Um, you so did like that. Guy. I actually no. I'm, I'm not being facetious. I did. I, I enjoyed his company. I like Canadians. He's Canadian. Uh, my wife That's, is Canadian too. So yeah. So you just biased because you married one of them? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe they're cool people. They're yeah, cool they people. are. And you ever, a- Robel, have you ever been to uh, Canada? I have. Where'd you Montreal go? and uh, Quebec. Nice. Yeah, my wife. My wife from Montreal too. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Great place. Uh, I I love it there. Good food. Everything. It's a, a just a, the only thing I don't like is um just the sometimes the the racist French a holes. They're kind of like it's potent. It's yeah. potent. They're they just like for you is potent. But other than that, uh, it's cool. It's a cool city. Well, anyway, uh, thank you for joining us on the twenty second episode of the Not Dumb Podcast with um. Shimon Robel and Iron Man Abdullah. Uh, Shimon is also known as the Biz. I forgot his nickname there. Um, Since you gave it to me, that's uh, kind of hurtful. I know. It's, <laughs> I just kind of messed up. <laughs> <laughs> Shimon's funny when he's not trying to be. But yeah, there you go. All right. So there you go. Um, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Um, there you go. One. One.